Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I hope that tonight's lecture will, uh, will be up to the, the high standards that have, have preceded us in this room. Uh, and may St. Thomas um, pray for us and gain wisdom for us. Okay. Martin Luther King and the question of unjust laws. What happens when the courts or the people get the law wrong? This past January, as every January, we celebrated uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, a hero of the American Civil Rights Movement, and Americans are right to be proud of Dr. King and the movement he led and guided. But I would suggest that if we really want to understand Dr. King, his movement, and his leadership, the way he understood it, in the terms that he laid out for it, we should look at what he said about it in its context. And so this evening, what I'd like to do is take a look at his famous letter from a Birmingham jail and to see the way that actually, it turns out, it is rooted in a long tradition of Western Christian reflection in which St. Thomas Aquinas is a major monument about the relationship between law, the positive law, and fundamental principles of justice. So uh, there's a handout for this lecture, which I think most of you have, which are just some excerpts from Dr. King's letter. Before we actually look at the letter, I'd like to make just three quick points to set it in context. Now, maybe you already know this, maybe it's obvious, but it's helpful to call it to mind. First of all, if you look at just the, the very first words, the mode of address, Dr. King is writing, my dear fellow clergyman. He's writing as a Christian minister to other Christian ministers. Now, that's interesting. The, the context for the civil rights movement that Dr. King was leading and the sorts of appeals he was making were to the consciences of Christians. He thinks that appealing to the Christian conscience should draw from the great heritage of Christian thought and that that's consistent with being a good citizen in the United States. That in a way that is bringing out the best in what we have in our country, the the tradition of justice and its relationship to law and to politics. Now, even though he is making an appeal to Christian ministers, however, I think we should remember and look carefully 
at the arguments he makes, which in fact are not directly drawn from divine revelation. He's making philosophical arguments that are accessible by natural reason to anyone of good faith, he thinks. So that's a, a very important combination, and that's something that's quite typical also of the Catholic intellectual tradition and of Thomas Aquinas. That we can have very profound truths that the mind is capable of discovering by its own lights, as it were, that is accessible to natural reason. Divine revelation also bears witness to these truths. There are other truths that we can only know by the light of faith, but at least on questions of justice, we can know an awful lot by the light of natural reason. And so Dr. King and Thomas Aquinas are not making explicitly religious arguments. They're making philosophical arguments, which are valid even, you know, if you hold a different faith or no faith at all. Okay, second point of context, the historical period. So it's 1963. Segregation is still a very big reality. And that's, of course, exactly what Dr. King is in jail for protesting. So he's been imprisoned for having engaged in civil disobedience against the laws of Birmingham, Alabama, which enforced racial segregation. But 1963 is not that long after 1945, the end of the Second World War. And everyone really involved in the civil rights movement had a living memory of the struggle against the Nazis. So that's a very real historical example that King is going to refer to. And what do you have in Nazi Germany? You had a state-sanctioned system, not only of discrimination, racial discrimination, the very profound racial discrimination, uh, but a, a program of, ex, of racial extermination, so genocidal murder, sanctioned by the law. And that's the important point that Dr. King is going to be pointing out. But there's another example that he uses, and that's Hungary. Hungary, an Eastern European or well, a Central European country, which after World War II fell under the domination of Soviet communism. And not too long before, had uh, experienced a popular uprising against the communists, a student-led uprising uh, in 1956, that the communists, the Soviets, uh, and the, the Hungarian communists moved by them, um, crushed with military force. Uh, it was a 19-day uprising, finally ended by Russian tanks. So... Dr. King makes reference to that too. It's a very live example of another state using the power of the state to suppress individual liberty and religious freedom, which is what, one of the things that he talks about. Uh, okay, so that context, uh, the third point of context I've really already mentioned, the Western tradition of reflection on law, justice, politics, and morality in the end. Um, okay, so let's start with Dr. King then. And I'd like to start uh, towards the end of this excerpt with the text mar marked in the margin as C, uh, because there you get a, a very good direct statement of the issue that I'd like us to talk about today. He writes, um, we can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany 
was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. But I am sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws. And then he goes on and adds another sentence, which is not on your handout. Everything that the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. Oh, no, I, I did quote that. Sorry, excuse me. So let's take up this question of what happens when you have a law that makes something profoundly unjust to be legal. And that obviously has happened historically in Nazi Germany. It happened historically in communist Hungary. What implications does Martin Luther King want us to draw about anti-discriminatory racial segregation laws in Birmingham, Alabama? He thinks that they are in the same category. Maybe not quite as bad as genocide, but profoundly unjust. So we could call this the question of illegal laws, and we could immediately jump to the question of adjudicating questions about uh, laws that are just and laws that are unjust. But before we get to that, I'd like to stop for a moment and reflect on the possibility of a law that's in some sense illegal. And that's maybe a strange way to put it, but by putting it that way, I think we can clarify a little bit of the, the we can tease apart some of the issues that sometimes get conflated when talking about this kind of question. Okay, so Martin Luther King talks about the law making something illegal that should be legal. Is it possible to have a law that is in some sense illegal? And actually, if you frame the question purely in terms of legality, uh, although it sounds strange, we can understand that even in our own system by thinking about like our federal system of laws, right? So we have a, a hierarchical ordering of laws and jurisdictions in our country. You have local laws like a city, you have the county, you have the state, you have the federal government. Even within the federal government, you have federal regulatory law passed by regulatory agencies. You have statutory law passed by Congress and signed by the president. You have constitutional law, which is the supreme law of the land, the highest law. So we can easily imagine a situation where you have a local law, for example, a local law in Birmingham, Alabama, that conflicts with some higher law, like a statute passed by the Congress or the U.S. Constitution. And we're very familiar with the principle that if Congress or if a state passes a law that conflicts with the Constitution, then it can be declared invalid, right? It's a, in a sense, it's an illegal law. Okay, so some people conclude from this that this is the primary sort of analysis that Martin Luther King is engaging in that you have a more fundamental law from above that is just decreeing that the subordinate law is uh, out of order or illegal. 
But I would say, don't be so quick to jump to that conclusion. Think about it a little bit more, and that's what I'm hoping that we will do here, to see that perhaps there's something else going on in addition to that. If you were to hold that you can resolve all kinds of questions about just and unjust laws, just the way that I just described, you know, you, you refer, well, there's a law of Congress, a national federal statutory law that overrules the local law of Birmingham, Alabama. And so we don't need to go any further than that. Or you could say, well, the U.S. Constitution or the U.S. Supreme Court will adjudicate the question and they will finally resolve it. And you don't have to go any, any higher than that. You could remain in that sort of account of law and illegality of laws and still be what is called a legal positivist. Legal positivism is the view that law is whatever the duly constituted governing authority decrees according to its accepted and recognized procedures. So on this view, uh, the local laws of Birmingham are positive law. So are the state laws. So is the federal law. So is the U.S. Constitution. Even though it's very difficult to change the U.S. Constitution, there was a duly constituted authority that wrote that law at one time and uh, put it into effect. So, you know, think of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and the ratifying process by the states and then subsequent amendments by passing Congress and uh, being ratified by the states. All of those are positive laws. Dr. King does not think it's sufficient to appeal to a higher positive law to make a decision about whether a law is just. He's making a deeper claim, a more robust claim, and it's helpful to understand the context. In 1963, what was happening in Birmingham, Alabama, was perfectly legal under the positive law. Now, it would later be declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. And in fact, as a result of uh, legislation passed by the Congress. But in 1963, it was not illegal, according to the positive law. And if he had taken his case to the U.S. Supreme Court, he would have lost. So Dr. King is making a more radical claim that we can't simply look to some human authority to determine whether the law is just or unjust. That is a different kind of question that just appealing to the fact that it was duly passed by a governing body doesn't answer. So often in the US, we tend to presume that the highest positive law also announces like the truth of the justice of the matter. So this is kind of a deep presupposition among many Americans. Like, well, if the U.S. Supreme Court says that X is constitutional, then X is permitted and just. And if the U.S. Supreme Court says X is not constitutional, then it's saying that it's not permitted and not just. And Dr. King is saying that's not a good enough standard to judge whether a law is just or unjust at the end of the day. In fact, he's trying to claim that there are principles that are knowable by human beings in general by which we can make judgments about whether a law is just or unjust. Okay, let's look at quotation A. 
and you get a sense of what he's doing here. So he writes, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, that was Brown versus Board of Education, which outlawed segregation, but only in public schools, not in private schools, not on uh, public transportation in Birmingham, Alabama. It is rather strange and paradoxical, he goes on, to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of law. There are just and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Okay, Dr. King is making a claim very different from what a legal positivist would make. For a legal positivist, you don't go further than the highest law promulgated by some duly constituted authority. And this is also the way that sociology approaches law when it looks at these kinds of questions. But if Dr. King is correct that some laws can be unjust, then the view that follows is that something that appears to be legal because passed by the duly constituted authority may not properly be a law, even though it followed all the right procedures. Why wouldn't it be a law? Because it's unjust. Okay, implicit claim. The law has to somehow be concerned with justice. You cannot abstract from the question of justice when you're making laws. Interesting uh, corollary there. The law, therefore, always has a moral dimension. Because justice is a question of morality in the end. Okay, so that is a very controversial claim. If you step into a public debate today and say, law should be always made in accordance with some principles of morality, people immediately get tense. And usually they get tense because they think, based on a lot of experience, I think, in, in American popular culture, that when someone says the law should be about morality, it's usually about some Christian minister thumping people over the head with a Bible to tell them not to have sex. And that that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the law enforcing morality. People are like, we've been down that path, we don't want to be there. Dr. King is not making a claim quite like that. Although, I mean, he's not saying that that's uh, completely wrong either. But this is not what he's talking about when he's making a claim that the law has to do with morality. He's trying to say the law is always going to involve some kind of appeal to what is just. And it needs to have that if it's not going to become parasitical on itself. So you see, unjust laws, according to King, although they're duly passed by the right authorities, in a way are parasites on the law because they are taking the form of a law to do something unjust. And that creates a kind of incoherence in the system that ultimately is going to destroy the whole system of like why we have laws. We have laws in order that we would be able to live well together. And how do we live well together? We have to be just to one another, meaning we have to give to others what is due them. That's not to say that we all have to uh, 
engage in complex schemes of, of public charity or private charity, but we at least have to be minimally fair to other people and give them what is due them. Okay, so if we agree with Dr. King on this point, it's not possible anymore to be a full-blooded legal positivist. And we will need to find some other principles at work. So what I'd like to do is go a little further with Dr. King's reasoning. So now let's look at uh, text B, quotation B. He asks, now what is the difference between the two, that is between a just and an unjust law? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Okay, so um, this warms the cockles of my heart as a Dominican and a disciple of Thomas Aquinas, that a great American hero like Dr. King would appeal also to someone who is a hero of mine, Thomas Aquinas. Um, and some of you may be thinking, okay, I feel like now we're in pretty deep waters. We're talking about uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, the eternal and natural law. But don't worry. It's not as difficult as you might think. And what I'd like to do is unpack a little bit what King means, and in fact, what he's referring to in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Like, what are these principles of eternal and natural law that, um, that Aquinas is talking about? And what I'd say is it's sometimes uh, can, can appear complicated, depending on uh, who you're talking to. And there's lots of competing uh, accounts of what natural law refers to. But natural law, according to Thomas Aquinas, is actually not that complicated. So I'm going to try to sort of explain in brief Aquinas' natural law view. Uh, and it's related to eternal law. I'll explain that in just a minute. For Aquinas, uh, natural law and eternal law are connected ideas. Okay, so in order to make this uh, rather straightforward, I'd like to start with some examples. And the examples are very concrete. Okay, so um, a friend of mine, um, Father Alan Moran, actually, if any of you know him, he's just been elected our prior provincial, uh, and he lives um, in midtown Manhattan, well, in, in, on the Upper East Side now at our Church of St. Vincent Fair. Um, he was raised on an apple farm in rural Illinois. Okay, so suppose one day you were to wake up on his apple farm. You're in charge of running the apple farm, but you've never run an apple farm before. What do you do? Well, probably you're going to try to call someone or um, look something up on the internet about like how to run an apple farm. But suppose uh, you don't have access to the internet and you've just got to like figure it out. Okay, so you're going you're gonna to engage in a process of observation. What are you trying to do if you're running an apple farm? Ultimately, your goal is to produce good apples, right? Apples that look good, that taste good, that are going to be sufficiently durable, that you can get a sufficient crop that you can take to market and earn a profit from your crop. Okay. So you're going to start paying attention to how the trees work, what makes them flourish. And in different seasons, you might experiment with different ways of pruning them or fertilizing them. You might harvest the apples earlier or later 
and see how that affects the crop. Uh, you might experiment with planting trees in different places with different exposures to the sun and the wind and so forth to the water. If you do that over a series of years, you will eventually learn what makes apple trees to flourish, what they need to produce good apples. And so you'll be able to kind of lay out some practical wisdom if someone else were to come after you to say, this is what you should do if you want a flourishing apple orchard. Okay? And you might even say, let me give you, I'll distill this into some rules for you. Don't harvest the apples before this date. Always make sure that you prune them in this way and not in that way, and so forth. Okay, you see where this is going? Now, suppose we change the example. You're a sheep farmer. Okay, sheep are more complicated than apple trees. But you can do the same thing with sheep over time and figure out what makes a flock of sheep to flourish. How do I harvest good uh, wool? Okay, let's change the example again. Horses. Suppose you're raising horses. Suppose you're raising, uh, raising now um, show-jumping horses. Okay, these are horses that require actually a lot of training. And uh, the horses are more social animals. They can influence each other. They have temperaments. You know, you can have a good-tempered horse and a, and a bad-tempered horse. And if you have too many bad-tempered horses, it might not be good for the, the formation, the education of the other horses. So it's much more complicated to come up with the right rules to follow to educate show-jumping horses. There's a lot more variables that go into training them. But you can master it over time, and there are people who have mastered it over time. So long years of practical experience can produce real knowledge about what leads to a flourishing show-jumping horse. And you could formulate a set of rules about how to raise horses in that. What happens when you get to a human being? Okay, this is the point of talking about natural law. Are there certain general principles or general rules that we can learn about human beings that tell us something about what you will need to do if you want to have a, a flourishing human being? Or even better, a flourishing human community, because that's really what we're after here. Not just raising one individual human being, but actually trying to provide for a human community. Thomas Aquinas thinks that natural law works just this way. You need to know something about what it means to be a human being and how human beings relate to each other. And then you can begin to come up with some very general rules, which of course it will admit of particular exceptions depending on the circumstances and the individuals. But you can, you can come up with some rules that are actually quite universally true, like human beings are social. So most human beings want to more or less have relationships with other people. So human beings don't typically live as isolated hermits. Now, during COVID, you know, perhaps you could say we experimented with that. Uh, there are some people who are still perhaps somewhat living as hermits. Um, but most people don't actually like that or think that it leads to their flourishing. So social life 
is important for human beings. You, you, of course, just as a plant needs light and water and a sheep needs food and a horse needs all of those things, plus the right amount of exercise, human beings need those things too. We need food. We need shelter. We need uh, the right kind of exercise. Uh, we could talk about requirements for health and healthy food. Okay. Is that enough to give you a flourishing human being? Is that enough to give you a flourishing human society? No, actually, it's, it's very important. You don't want to neglect it, but it's not enough to make you flourish. So human beings want to be in relationship with other people. Okay, what, what comes with that? Well, we need to have some minimal standards of justice. That is, we can't be constantly wronging each other. We need to have some measure of truth. Human relationships that have no measure of truth in them become wretched relationships. It's destructive of human relationships to have uh, constant lies, structural lies. These are things, now they're very general statements, but Aquinas thinks you can say, you know, that's pretty much true for all human societies. It's always going to be true. And we can even make them a little more specific. You can't have a society that sanctions the killing of innocent people. You can't have societies that sanction theft across the board. Okay, these are, these are basic rules. They're kind of negative rules, like we have to rule some things out. It doesn't necessarily give us all the information you need in order to live a fully flourishing human life. You know, it's not going to tell you what your major should be in college. But we can definitely say you shouldn't commit a murder. Like, maybe you could study psychology or economics or philosophy, but, you know, I'm going to leave that to you, but definitely don't commit a murder. Don't commit theft. Like, be a person of honesty. Keep your promises. Okay, these are all the sorts of things that we're talking about are necessary if you're going to have a flourishing human society. And that's what we're talking about, about the fundamental precepts of the natural law for Aquinas. He would even say that there's something more required for human beings just than having right relationships among each other. Well, I left out one thing. We skipped over something. Uh, keep yourself in being, okay? Even rocks try to keep themselves in being. It's very hard to break them apart. But so do all plants and animals. Seeking nourishment, reproduction, and raising children. This is something that is a profound human impulse. We share it with animals. It's not our highest impulse. Uh, but it is an important impulse. It pertains to the natural law. Then we get to things that pertain properly to reason and our relationship with each other as rational creatures. And that where, that's where justice and truth come into the picture. So we don't worry about lions being unjust to each other. You don't find uh, one lion complaining that the other lion like took his prey. Like, hey, I killed that gazelle. You know, leave it for me. They, they will fight over things like that, but they don't like go to their friends and complain, right? Human beings do that because appeals to justice actually are, that's a rational creature's response to not getting what you think is due. But the highest thing that Aquinas thinks we are made for is actually to be related to God. Now, that's not a claim based on divine revelation. You could base it on the Bible, 
But Aquinas thinks that it's true, naturally speaking, that human beings, if they think about it, recognize that they are limited and that there must be something above the level of the human to which they should give some kind of acknowledgement of thanks and even of worship. So Aquinas thinks that it is a part of the natural law that human beings would be religious. Now, that doesn't mean that you would, would be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu. I mean, it's not making any determinations about how to do that. But he does think that a human being who doesn't do that at all is actually missing something and is not going to be in right relationship with the world around him or her. Okay, this is Aquinas' approach to thinking about natural law. And what, what does it really involve? It means that the human being, with our capacity for knowing things, with our minds, observes the world around us and sees in it certain principles of order about what kind of creatures we are and therefore what kinds of things we ought to do if we're going to flourish and then order our lives accordingly. That's what Aquinas thinks the natural law is doing. Even more than that, he says, if you have the perspective of God on this whole process and, you know, someone who's just trying to figure out like how to have a flourishing human society doesn't necessarily have the perspective of God. But if you have a kind of, if you've done your philosophical homework and you've really thought this through, Aquinas thinks that you could put it this way. The whole order of the universe comes forth from God according to some plan in his mind. The order that we find in the world then has its origin in God, in God's mind, in God's plan for the world. He thinks that that's something you can, it's philosophically knowable. So if that's the case, then when our minds begin to recognize principles about how we ought to behave based on the reality that we inhabit, in fact, what we are discovering is the way that the plan in God's mind needs to be worked out by us according to our free actions. And that's where you get the connection to the eternal law. The plan in God's mind is the eternal law. Natural law for Aquinas is the way our minds grasp the order in the world and eventually can see that it's rooted in some plan in God's mind. But in fact, he doesn't think that you have to go through all those steps or that most people who follow the natural law go through those steps. I mean, that's like the deep philosophical underpinnings for his view. He thinks that really natural law is very straightforward, like what makes an apple tree flourish, what makes a, a, a horse flourish, what makes a human being flourish, what makes a human community flourish. There's got to be some basic principles that we can figure out about that. And there, because we have a common human nature, those principles are going to be the same across human societies. Okay, now I'd like to uh, change gears just a bit and talk about Aquinas' definition of law, because this also helps us understand Martin Luther King's argument. Aquinas defines law this way, and this is a famous definition that, um, if it were up to me, every, certainly every law student, but even, I'd say, every, every college graduate should be, should be able to repeat this definition. It's a simple enough definition, but it's actually very profound. He says, law is an ordination of reason for the common good 
made by one with care of the community, which is promulgated. Okay, so it has elements. It's an ordination of reason. What does that mean? It means law is about an ordering of reason. We as human beings have the capacity to observe the world, to understand the good, and to order our lives towards it. We use our minds to figure out what we ought to do. And this is what someone with care of the community is supposed to do when making laws. It's supposed to be an inquiry of reason about how the community can move towards its good. That may sound, in a certain way, kind of obvious when you put it that way, but it has not been obvious through human history because there have been very many regimes that have defined law as the commandment of the ruler just based on whatever he decides he wants to command. So the king gets to just make whatever law he wants, even if it's arbitrary. Arbitrary, of course, comes from the Latin root for to choose. It's just whatever the king happened to, to want that day, not according to some ordination of reason. Okay, Aquinas thinks, and this is very important, a very important qualification of law in the Western tradition is that law is an ordination of reason. Law has to be accountable to reason in some way. There has to be a rational basis for the laws that we pass if they're going to be laws. Okay, second element. It's for the common good. That's also really important. It's not just an ordination of reason for anything, but for the good. And what kind of good? Not for the personal gain of the ruler or of some part of society, but for the good of the community as the community. Okay, we could talk a lot about the common good and it's a very interesting subject. I'll leave that for the Q&A if you guys want to go further to talk about that. But very important distinction, the common good is not the same as particular goods. The common good is the good of the community. So just to illustrate this with a very simple example, we've got uh, cookies in the back of the room. We could say those cookies belong to us as a community. Uh, so we could, someone might say, well, they're a common good. Well, in a sense, they are a kind of a common good in this, in, insofar as we all own them together. But I cannot eat your cookie, and you cannot eat mine. At least once I've got it, you're going to have a hard time getting it away from me, probably. If it's the Easter season, I mean, I'm eating cookies again. The point is, it's the kind of thing that cannot intrinsically be shared. You can break it up, but two people cannot get the same morsel. So it's not properly common. What kind of goods are common? The community does have properly common goods. For example, justice. Justice belongs to everyone in the community. And you don't decrease my share of justice by getting some justice yourself. And that's very important. Or for a sports team, victory. Everyone on the team wins when the team wins. It's not a bunch of individual victories. So these are essentially shareable common goods that belong to the community as a community. And that's what law is supposed to be ordering us to. It's something higher than a particular good, even though sometimes it does deal with a particular good. Okay, so with that um, a brief tour of Aquinas on natural law and the definition of law, 
We can go back to talking about the positive law in Dr. King's uh, view, and also uh, Thomas Aquinas's. What's the function of the positive law? Especially since we do have experiences of the positive law sometimes going wrong. Well, Aquinas thinks that the positive law is actually very important. It's important because the natural law is very generic, very general. It might make it very clear that you can't murder or steal. But this particular community may need to make provision for its particular sort of good. That the natural law is just too general for answering. And so each particular community is going to have to make much more particular decisions about our context, our people, how we live here. And of course, there's an enormous diversity of human cultures and a wide scope for human flourishing. So what the students at NYU think make for a good student life is not necessarily the same as the students at Louisiana State University. Uh, and the student culture is probably rather different in those two places. So if we were to poll the student body at NYU, like is having a championship uh, college football team, you know, high on your list of priorities. Well, maybe you would say, yeah, I wish, I wish we had one. Um, but if you go to some schools, you know, I was just at um, FSU, uh, you know, at FSU, um, it's very important to have a good football team. You know, if you don't have a good football team, it's pretty bad school year. Um, but the students at NYU may not feel that way. Okay, so there are very different contexts in which it, there might be very legitimate uh, differences there. And the natural law doesn't require you to have a winning football team, even if it might be important for one political community and not for another. But if the positive law goes against the fundamental principles of justice, then it's doing something that it's not capable of doing. And that's precisely the issue that Dr. King is grappling with, where the positive law is now beginning to do an injustice to some members of the community for the benefit of other members of the community. Is this an ordination of reason for the common good? No, it is never in the interest of the common good to legislate an injustice. So Aquinas and Dr. King would say, this is always an implicit condition in having a valid law. It has to be compatible, minimally compatible with justice. Okay, now there are going to be disagreements about this when we descend into particulars. The more you get into individual questions, the harder it is to decide, is this person entitled to this? Is that person entitled to that? And so lawmakers, judges, they're going to have some difficult decisions to make. But this is what the process of politics and the process of uh, legal adjudication by judges is supposed to be for. And there should be aiming at the common good. But in the case of racial segregation, King's argument was, I don't think you can really justify this. And no one can really put forward a, a, a defensible case of this. It's an obvious violation of justice in his view. Notice that King is not making an appeal 
simply to some kind of divine law that God is like a legislator in the sky. It's actually a natural law argument about the principles of justice that we find in the world and that our minds are capable of knowing. Okay, so um, let me try to uh, sum up and then we can take some questions. For Dr. King and for Aquinas, law is an ordination of reason. It's directed towards the common good. It always is necessarily concerned with matters of justice. That means it always is concerned with moral questions. In fact, I, I think we could talk about this in the Q&A if you like. I don't think you can come up with an example of a law that doesn't have a moral dimension. And that's controversial. People, people um, may be disoriented by that or not like that, but I think that's in fact actually the case. And in fact, in the end, law is a teacher. And we see this, I think, very clearly in the United States. Uh, we are taught by the law what is just and what is unjust. So it is important that we have just laws. It sets forth a guide for our life together. So we could go on and enumerate the basic things that every society needs to respect. But in the interest of time, I think perhaps we could just simply go back and say, to see the connection between law and justice, and therefore some broad sense of what is moral and what is right, this is what Dr. King was arguing for. It's the cause for which he suffered a lot, opprobrium, imprisonment. We rightly hold him out as an exemplar, an example for our nation. And I would hope that his example and his teaching would be an encouragement to us to bear the same kind of witness to the truth about justice that he did. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.